The Plumley Pod, episode 68. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education. The Plumley Pod. Hello and welcome to the Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley, and we are back with the one and only Bob Moran of Bob's Cartoons. I'm delighted because you know how biased I am. He's one of my favorites. I'm sorry, everyone else. I can't help it. I love seeing art that says all of the words. It might take me half an hour to do a monologue, and actually, Bob just has done the painting. It's there. Everything I could have thought of. It's in one painting. Unbelievable. I'm just going to read you guys Bob Moran's Wikipedia entry because. I'm actually really surprised at this. I'm thrilled. So here it is. Bob Moran is a British cartoonist whose work has been published in many publications, including Morning Star, The Guardian, and The Telegraph, and more recently, The Conservative Woman. On the 12th of October 2017, he was awarded the Cartoon Art Trust Award for political cartooning. He was sacked by The Telegraph in October 2021, following tweets in which he commented that Dr. Rachel Clark should be verbally abused for encouraging the use of masks on public transport. And if anyone is wondering why Bob's a hero of mine, right there. Bob took a stand on one of the most important issues of our lifetime, forcing people to wear masks or shaming people into wearing masks. And even encouraging people to wear masks was absolutely criminal, in my opinion. And still to this day, I see people wearing them outside in the country on their own, driving their cars. We are now in 2024. What has happened to these people? Bob, welcome back to the podcast. And can you shed any light on this kind of mentality? Hi, Sarah. It's great to be back on with you again. Yes, things haven't improved massively since we last spoke, have they? No. Yeah, it is fascinating when you go out still, and and I've been spending a lot of time in London, and there's still people in masks all over the place. We know it was never to do with any real threat or even based on ensuring that these people thought they worked at preventing something or keeping them safe. It's entirely a cult mentality. And so much time has passed and there has been more than enough information confirming that these things do nothing at all beneficial and they cause a lot of damage and both physical damage and psychological damage. And they create a kind of mentality within a population of fear for your fellow human beings that everyone must be seen as a vector of disease and we mustn't communicate or interact with one another in public even smiling is bad you know masks basically make smiling illegal but there are still people who want to wear them and I, I don't think there is you could give those people any amount of information and you could demonstrate to them any amount of damage that's being done from masks and they would still put them on because these people are just addicted to conformity now. Yeah, it's it's tragic. And to this day, when I walk out and see it in open countryside, it still shocks me. I know it shouldn't. I know I should have become accustomed to that horrible sight, but it, I still don't have anything in me which can ever accept that that is okay. It just shows me that you're conforming to some bizarre and strange cult and that that's actually dangerous. You know, is there anything more dangerous than ignorance, willful ignorance? I don't know. I'm not sure I have the answer to that. Because when I listen to the greats, they tell me that there are never enough fascists. The problem with something like fascism as as a tyranny, there are never enough of them. 
So what they do is they have to recruit like lots of sort of willing volunteers or collaborators or just ignorant people and help them to bring their fascist ideas, their fascist dictatorship into being, a la Nazi Germany, for example. And I can't help but agree with those observations from history. And when I see it, I just think, ah, collaborator. And I can't help but feel anger and resentment towards this kind of behavior because of how dangerous it is to me. I wouldn't dream of telling somebody how to live their life, but those people wanted to tell me what I had to put on my face for two and a half out of about the last uh, four years. How do we approach this? What do we do? Yeah, it's interesting. And I mean, it's weird now because they are in the minority at the moment, the people who choose to get on the train in a mask or whatever. It's not not like before where you would go into a shop or a restaurant and you'd probably be the only person who wouldn't put a mask on. And now there's sort of one or two people in any place still wearing a mask. And you know, I'm almost tempted sometimes to think, oh, that's pretty bold of you, you know, <laughs> to, to still be wearing a mask. But they do look ridiculous now when everyone around them is just completely living their lives normally and showing their faces and there's somebody with a mask on. The thing is, it's impossible to have one of those masks on without looking absolutely terrified. Something about having the mask on makes their eyes, which is all you can see, have this kind of haunted look, like they're totally terrified human beings. And, and of course, it, it basically says, I've surrendered all of my agency. You know, that's the thing about them. It says, I have no stake in this world. I have no voice. I am a complete servant of the state to such an extent that the state can muzzle me and stop me communicating in the most basic way with my fellow human beings. And this, of course, bleeds out into everything else. So every uh, other issue that comes along, these people adopt the same mentality of just, I must do what I'm told. I was thinking about this the other day. It's sort of, um, I mean, you'll find this interesting in terms of children and how children kind of turn into adults. And no one really tells you how to be an adult, do they? It's kind of a, a weird transition that happens. And to an extent, we're all sort of pretending to be grown-ups, aren't we? I mean, part of us never stops being a child. But people get to a certain age and kind of think, well, I'm supposed to be grown up now. There's a certain way of being a grown up. And I think part of that is feeling like it's very mature to obey the rules, to be a good girl or boy, do as you're told, and not make a fuss and not rebel, because that's a very sort of adolescent thing to do. Is interesting, children, and although it's very difficult for parents, children are not afraid to say no, are they? A lot. Children will always say no to things. And obviously, sometimes it's difficult because they don't understand that they need to do something or it's good for them or, or, or it's dangerous. They'll say no. And then people think part of being an adult is not saying no again anymore. Always saying yes when you're told something by people in authority. Another similar thing is children at a certain age will ask why about everything, you know, and it can drive you mad. Why? 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 And again, people think, oh, once you're grown up, you're not, you're not supposed to question things. You're not supposed to ask why. You just accept what you're told by the television. And of course, that's a really important thing to hold on to. And really, it's all anyone had to do was firstly ask why we were being asked to do these things or why this stuff was happening. And then to say no. And they're both things that it's programmed out of us when we become adults. And it's instinctive in children. So 
I think that's interesting, and it's not something. I don't think it's something I ever lost, but that's partly because I was always rebellious through my work. You can't be a cartoonist unless you constantly ask why and decide things that people should say no to. And that's the main message of my show, really, is just the next time something like this comes along, just remember you can say no. You're allowed to. Yeah, well said. Absolutely brilliant. It's where I went wrong. I've always asked why. I've never lost my childlike capacity to ask why. And I have to actually thank drama school for this, which sounds really awful, because when you say those words drama school, people envisage something out of fame, the musical, which yeah. is kind of the antithesis of real drama school. That's, it's nothing like that at all. It's not. Proper drama school, professional actor training is nothing like fame school. Anyway, I have them to thank, really, because they sort of force regression in the first term or two for first years, and they take you back to how you were as a child. They, we even play children's games to access that inner questioning and that ability to, to be dangerous and to take risks. Because when you go to drama school, you're probably about 18, 19, 20, unfortunately. They'd like to work with older people because they have more life experience. But people who are wild enough to go to drama school and can afford it tend to be 17, 18, 19, and 20. And what, but even by that age, late teens, early 20s, the trainers, the acting directors, they've already decided that we have lost the capacity lost the capacity to keep all of the possibilities open, but like we censor ourselves. So even by the age of 18, 19, your children are actually going to be censoring themselves based on what society has taught them is and is not appropriate. Now, if you're right. going to be a proper actor, such as yourself, a proper artist, you have to, to challenge the status quo. It's your job to say naughty things. It's your job to ask really difficult questions of people. And the training is, is quite robust. And something I'm very, very grateful for to this day. Because although um, my path didn't lie that way in the end, I always harbored ideas of being a playwright. So that's probably not going to happen now that the leftists have, have taken control of all of the theatres. My plays don't have leftist themes, unfortunately. Though I did write one with a, a black lady in a wheelchair who maybe had a lesbian friend. Uh, and still that wasn't woke enough for them. I didn't do that on purpose. It was an accident. But no, I'm, I'm never going to be doing that. But yeah, it's, it's a very difficult thing to retain that childhood ability to question things, to constantly ask why, and to be able to say no, 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 yeah. no. How do you think you've managed to retain it despite everything that's happened to you? Because obviously you got to the very, very top of being a professional cartoonist. And there are so few of those jobs, there must be, because there are so few newspapers that have political cartoons these days. So you've sort of scaled the heights. Did you find that it was difficult to hold on to those things when were you perhaps put under pressure sometimes by newspapers or did they, were they wise enough then to let you do as you pleased? It's interesting when I think back now, and I wasn't conscious of this while I was at the newspaper, but I can see now that I had a naturally cynical, rebellious streak in me, you know, kind of a, a born satirist. And I love poking fun at authority. I like challenging authority. I liked trying to show people the irony and hypocrisy and get them to question what they're being told. And obviously when you're kind of like, when I was a teenager, all the way through school, I was drawing outrageous pictures all the time. I'd spend all my time in lessons in my rough book, just drawing the teacher or drawing friends or enemies and or making enemies. And I get loads of detentions. Sometimes I graffiti on the desks and things like that. And it was a kind of a pure rebellious thing. And I wasn't interested in politics really until later when I kind of figured out 
oh, if you want to do this for a job, probably the best way is to be a political cartoonist. So then I had to start engaging with politics. And I thought, well, you know, just look at the politicians like like the teachers of the adult world, the authority figures. And again, like all through university, I was lucky I was allowed to pursue it at university. But again, my work was really quite outrageous. And then you kind of think, okay, if I want to get into a newspaper, obviously I'm going to have to make compromises and I'm going to have to kind of dial it down a bit possibly, depending on which newspaper you work for. I mean, I started out doing some work for The Guardian. Their cartoons tend to be more savage and you can have kind of more um, bodily fluids and that type of stuff in them. Whereas this job came up at The Telegraph and Telegraph cartoons, a different vibe. You know, it's more kind of wink-wink, nudge-nudge humour. You're kind of doing the sort of pictures the politicians themselves would probably quite enjoy and have a chuckle at and might buy and put in their downstairs loo. Telegraph readers want kind of satire with the right edge of respect still in there for who you're drawing. And I could do that. I was good at that. I'd learned how to do that too, because sometimes I'd use my drawing to make friends. And so I could do complimentary stuff, or I could do stuff that the target would find funny. But I didn't realise how embedded I got in that mentality until the lockdowns and everything started in 2020. So you're right, when you're working for a newspaper, there are days when you think, well, this is a really important story, this seems ridiculous, what they're going to do here, I'm going to do a cartoon about that. And an editor would say, oh no, we're, we think that's great, we're supporting that, so you can't criticise it. No, Oh, okay, fine. Or, or other times it would be something like, the editor's having lunch with him today, so it would be awkward if you draw him, even things like that. And it's your job and you're kind of thinking, I'm really lucky to have this job and it's stable and that, you know, I'm trying to kind of work my way up the ladder. So you just accept this stuff. It's the same for everyone in a newspaper. It's the same for all the journalists. You know, they'll come and pitch an article and get told, no, not this week or no, you need to change the angle of that. That's just the way it works. And it never bothered me really until 2020 when I just felt really, really strongly that this is not right at all. And I understood early on that I had the tools to highlight some of the things that people were missing and really get people to question what they were being told and the ethics of it. And it was fine to start with, but it got harder and harder the closer we got to the jab rollout. And I had colleagues, people I didn't really know at the paper, but they were complaining about me and um, there was a campaign to get me fired long, long before anything happened with that. But then, as soon as I lost that job and was totally free, I realized that I could be a lot more brutal and push a lot harder. And what happened was, I kind of started to go back to that almost schoolboy mentality, that teenage, like pure rebellious mentality of just being quite outrageous and naughty, but combining it with the kind of intelligent commentary I'd learned to do at the newspaper. So it's kind of being slightly more kind of having more nudity and outrageous stuff, but in a more highbrow way, you know. And I find that really interesting, that kind of um, that thing I'd lost without realizing it is now coming back into my work. It works very well if you have something to say beyond just, here's Michelle Obama with a willy, 
if it's in a context that's saying something else that's important, you know, you can get away with it. Yeah, you, you're like a, a rare sort of distilled drink, a very <laughs> fine. It seems like you've been through this whole process, like the rebel has been crunched through something like the Tory graph disclaimer. I did used to read it, actually. Although my family were raving leftists, and I mean crazy, scary leftists, I was indoctrinated into leftism without even knowing what it was or that I was being indoctrinated into it. But I had a love of cricket, played a lot of cricket in my youth. Yeah, yeah. And that's the best paper, in my opinion, for cricket. So I used to buy the Telegraph a lot. And I, I'd be honest with you, I'd look at the cartoons and the cricket. And that's pretty much it. I wasn't really interested in very much else. But it was a fabulous paper for the cricket and my family hated it. I wasn't allowed to be seen with them with it or anything like that. But I, I, didn't, I wasn't really interested in that. I, I wasn't really fussed. But I, I was the opposite. I wasn't really a rebel at all. I didn't see myself that way. I was labelled unconventional, but I wasn't trying to be. I was extremely well behaved at school. I was like a model student, did really well academically with sport, with drama, was very popular, very high profile, didn't, I had never got a detention even. But I have to sort of credit, I guess it's the mathematics, I guess it's the logic the, the problem that the powers that shouldn't be have got is they don't do logic terribly well. Their narratives are not logical. So I always had problems. If I, if I can't see the logic, a good example from the scandemic would be you can, if you stand up in a bar, in a restaurant, you have to put your muzzle on to go to the toilet. But when you sit back down again, you can take it off. Well, that's totally illogical. And for me, these are the kinds of things that have always jarred with me, but from a, a very, very young age. So for example, on 9-11, I was only about, I can't even remember how old, I was at high school, say, and I noticed that something, it would seem from the television, had hit the towers, it looked like a plane, and then the towers burned, and then they fell down. But the problem is, from my sort of maths brain, was they'd been hit from one side, they'd been damaged asymmetrically, but they fell symmetrically. And I knew that that was a problem. So this is just like a pure maths and physics kind of cognitive dissonance experience whereby I'm going like, hang on a minute, I know that if you, if I punch somebody in the face, their head will go backwards. <laughs> yeah. It won't fall straight down, depending on which angle I've punched them from. So I'm yeah. just looking at, if you want to be posh about it, you call it Newton's laws, don't you? And I, I couldn't fathom it. So all of these things have never made sense to me for a very, very long time. And I have to, like I said earlier, I have to credit drama school for keeping those doors and windows open. Because I think if had it not been for drama school, I think my even my logical brain would have eventually conformed. I think I was just like slower than other people to conform. And it was only drama school that kept those little windows open for me mm. that allowed me later to go, wait a minute, no, I was right. There is something wrong here. There is something not, not happening. Yeah. The people who are at the very top of all this and have planned all of this for a long, long time, orchestrated it all in a, and are pushing us in a specific direction, they aren't illogical. I mean, they have a really, really good understanding of logic. It's very intentional. They deliberately put totally illogical ideas out at every opportunity as a kind of test because the aim is to stop people thinking and to make people totally disengage with logic to believe complete nonsense. And another thing they're trying to do is to have a reality around people so everyone can see what is happening or what is not happening in their own lives, in the real world. They want to be have people so brainwashed that they can then tell them the opposite on the television or in their newspaper, and people will assume they must be mistaken by what they've seen and believe the narrative that's fed to them. And that's like, going back to 9-11, everyone saw the images of those buildings collapsing, 
And everyone, I think, instinctively knew that's not what happens when a plane hits a building. But of course, what also happened on 9-11 in the first few hours after those buildings collapsed is you had on the news reports, presumably before the journalists were told, you've got to stop reporting on this naturally and organically. So they invited a load of engineers and demolition experts into the studio who were saying, yeah, I mean, clearly the only way buildings do that is if it's a controlled demolition. And look, you can see the explosive going off. And about an hour later, all those people disappeared and you never heard from them again. And it suddenly became a conspiracy theory to say that the buildings had been rigged with explosives. You can still go back and find some of those early interviews on on YouTube or, or other places. It probably bit shoots better. They are still around. But it was the same thing. It's like, let's show people what's happening here. Let's make sure they can all see, they can all use their logic, and then just go, no, that isn't what happened. And then study how many people buy it. And of course, almost everyone bought it. All these things, it's a process of leading up to where we are now, of gradually grinding people's cognition and engagement with reality down as much as they they possibly can. Because the jabs is sort of the ultimate version of that. To tell people they were safe and necessary and effective, have people take them, have the reality hit everyone in the face that there isn't a single person now you can find anywhere who doesn't know someone in their family or close to them who's taken the injections and either been really ill or died suddenly. It's happening everywhere in every single country. They also know loads of people who didn't take them, and these things are not happening to the people who didn't take the jabs. That is everyone's reality now, and still they will put on the television and hear that they've saved millions of lives and there's nothing wrong with them, and the anti-vaxxers are making up conspiracy theories. And it is amazing how they're able to let a newsreader or a politician dictate their reality when their reality is so far from what they're being told. It's incredibly dangerous that if we're going to try and go on as a species with that level of cognitive dissonance, anything is possible. Yeah, it's truly terrifying. I agree with you that the people who are in charge of this, if indeed they are people, they certainly don't seem very fond of humans. But uh, I, I certainly agree that they're extremely intelligent. And yeah, for sure, you can see their logic, all right. Look at all the red herrings they left for curious people around something like 9-11, all of these like dead ends and, and misdirections. And you can see that with, with the scamdemic as well. You can see the fingerprints of that all over it, whereby they leave information that's so blatant. And those that point it out become the ones who are castigated and banished and then called names and called conspiracy theorists. And their crime is pointing out something that is illogical or something that is impossible, something that's right in your face. Like, for example, the average time it takes for a vaccine to be brought to market is 10 years. Yeah. Like that tiny little fact. Like this is the first time in history that's not been the case. But you're an, if you say that, you're an anti-vaxxer, which is a, a completely strange thing to say to people when most of us have been vaccinated because unfortunately when we're children we don't get a choice our parents make that for us one of my favorite examples of it was the fact that their whole argument for doing everything was based on this nonsense idea of asymptomatic transmission so you know for the first time ever you can feel completely fine but actually be infected with a deadly virus that you're going to spread to other people and that's why everyone has to be locked up and no one can 
go out and we have to rip everyone's rights away because you know in the first few weeks there were there were even BBC journalists saying to the politicians you know but surely you just stay at home if you've got symptoms if you haven't got symptoms you're fine and they kind of went no look asymptomatic transmission it's this new thing it's a big thing so what you have to assume from that based on their argument is that this happened all the time like this virus was constantly spreading through people who had no symptoms right that's the basis of what they're doing and the jabs come along and people are going what these jabs how do they work then and oh they're amazing they're so clever because what they do is they make sure you won't have any symptoms even if you have the virus at which point myself and loads of other people start going ah basic logic guys here if this thing spreads in people with no symptoms, what you're doing is ensuring that nobody has any symptoms, which means you're creating an army of super spreaders. And again, it's like, that's nonsense. That's a uh, conspiracy theory. I mean, obviously it is nonsense because all the jabs ever did was cause harm. There was no process by which they were going to help anyone. But again, based on their argument, it was ludicrous. And they they could easily have come up with some other reason. They could easily have said they work in a different way. That, again, was intentional. It was to say, let's tell them that jabs make everyone asymptomatic when we've already said the virus spreads asymptomatically. And no one said anything. No, no one went, well, that doesn't make any sense. I won't take it then. They all went out and got it. You can sense sometimes these people just rubbing their hands together with glee. Of like, oh, I can't, you know, I can't believe they fell for that one. We are doing so well. We've really got them all by the balls. I told you off air that our tele-lie vision broke during the scandemic. And I have to be honest here, it was because at some point one of these logic things happened and one of us launched something at the tele-lie vision. <laughs> so we got that lovely line, you know, where you've really popped some of the, uh, the lighting out of it. And then a few days later, the actual digi box that was decoding uh, English television here, that decided to die. So the monitor was still technically useful, but... The actual box of its own accord. We didn't throw anything at that. But this was the kind of frustration that my husband and I felt at the, at the pure illogicality of the whole thing. Every day, it seemed, there was some new problem in, in the story. So, for example, when the BBC Lies 24 said they switched from died of COVID to died with COVID and nobody said a word. They'd been talking about how many people had died of COVID the whole way through up to that point. And then one day they just changed it to died with and didn't explain their change. And it's like, wait a minute, that matters. That's a big deal. No, apparently not. No, carry on. I don't know, did they do that to see how many people would even notice one of their little sick tests? We didn't perform very well as a species, I have to say, during COVID. And it, it alarms me because it's not gone away. The mechanisms there, the sort of the mind control, the blind obedience to authority, that's there forever with these people. And we know that because when we challenge them with logic, basic facts, you don't get anything back except maybe a smack in the mouth or called nasty names or whatever. That's for me, the, it's, like, it's a bit like the sword of Damocles hanging over all right-thinking, decent people everywhere. Because to my mind, the government, had to be careful to say the nice version of that then, the government could flick the switch and claim something else is going on, put it out through the telelive vision. And I, I don't see any evidence that we would see a different result this time. What do you think? Well... This is really tricky, isn't it? Because if I didn't hold out some hope, I wouldn't be bothering to do a lot of the things that I'm doing. You know, like I said, my show, my, my stage show that I've been doing is very much 
it's not just for our side, you know, it's aimed at people who aren't awake and who went along with stuff. And we work really, really hard to tailor it that way. So it was kind of our side would love it. And then other people could come along and it worked. You know, we did two nights of that show in November at the Bloomsbury Theatre in London. And lots of people came who knew my work and were on site, but they brought along a friend or a family member who was completely the other way. And those people really liked it. Well, almost all of them, you know, there was one nurse who walked out, but almost all of them really liked it. And a few of them afterwards said to me, this has completely changed my perspective and I can see it now and I can see what you were all going on about. And that made the whole thing worthwhile because I thought we've managed to do this here. So we managed to get through to those people. So part of me hopes that not as many would go along with the next thing. There'll still be an awful lot. And of course, we've got to remember that, you know, I think sad as it is, people who've had the injections, who've had two or more injections, they're just not really who they were. And I do think it's not just physical, it does something to you mentally and spiritually. And I'm not sure that there is a way back for them. But you know, I'm not sure it will bother them. I don't think it will bother those people. I think they could end up being hurled into a cell and with the VR goggles strapped to them and a Pfizer drip 24-7. And they won't be sad. They'll think it's fine. You know, I don't think they'll, they will be suffering because they'll have been psychologically broken to such an extent. But yeah, I, do, I am a bit optimistic. I think we can get a few more people to say no the next time, hopefully. That's wonderful news. Like all the stuff we said was going to happen throughout 2020. It's not as if none of it's happened. We are now living in the reality that we were trying to prevent. And again, like you say, when you point this out to people, I mean, some of them say, oh, yeah, it was a lucky guess. (laughs) Oh, it was a lucky guess, was it? Well, every single thing that has happened, I just, I guessed it. Again, no, it's not guessing, it's logic. It's if you do this, this will happen. Or they just deny it. You know, they just kind of go, oh, no, that's not happening. No, that's, um, it's very difficult. And you can't force someone to open their eyes, can you? You've got to wait. Sadly, you have to wait for it to be the right time for them. And it's not easy. That's the other thing. It's not an easy thing to wake up to this stuff. It's not for the faint-hearted, is it? You've got to be pretty brave. And you've got to be willing to more or less let go of everything. Every kind of security, all the things you used to cling on to, you have to assume that almost everything might be a lie and totally reevaluate your understanding of the world and how it works and the history and science. And, you know, I mean, what, what is science? How much of science is true? And I mean, you're, you're lucky at being a mathematician, I think, because you can't really corrupt numbers like you can yeah, obviously, you can use numbers to corrupt information, but maths is maths, isn't it? Sure. Even though it's now being called racist, and there are, there are people legit arguing that two plus two doesn't necessarily have to equal four. I always say, okay, listen, fat lady, if you have two cakes and I bring two more cakes, how many cakes have yeah, we got? Yeah. Right, shut up. So yeah, and luckily, I can still defend, because maths is kind of the language of the universe, because it is, is self-evident truth. I'm, I am lucky there, and I do know how lucky as well. I actually use maths to bring parents in and show them how their children are being manipulated and how they have been manipulated using figures, lies, damn lies, and statistics, that old chestnut. I sort of show that 
in uh, my workshops and lectures. And then I use it to show them the other problems inside education. Because people think that drag queens are the biggest problem in British education. I call it the drag queen smokescreen. Because right. actually, the, I don't know anybody who thinks it's okay for kids to be hanging out with drag queens. That's a decision for adults to make. That's not for children. That's adult entertainment, if you wish to call it that. So I hadn't actually met anybody who really thinks that drag queens ought to be in primary schools or libraries, for example. So I show people that, no, this is a smokescreen to hide the fact that your children are being indoctrinated into statism. They are being trained to conform and comply to authority, an authority that is from the state directly or indirectly, yeah. depending on who funds them. And in addition, that your children are no longer being given a rigorous academic background. And that can be seen by the simple way they used cumulative frequency graphs to terrify people that more and more people were dying each day. Instead of showing a frequency polygon where it was the total number of people that had died that day, they were adding each day before it onto the previous day's total, but not explaining that. We shouldn't really need that explained to us. We should know that. It's kind of a grade D, D for donkey, GCSE. But the problem is we have lost so much the average level of intelligence has been falling for a long, long time. I haven't quite pinpointed how long, actually. But if you look at the 1940s papers for O-level maths and compare them to today's GCSE, there is no comparison. And that probably gives us some idea how long this has been going on. So, yeah, it's a really, really big thing. I just I wanted to say before, actually, it sounds to me like Bob Moran is doing triage. Yeah. You're saving the people that can be saved. I think we need to get you on the road more. Get back to London, Bob, because you're, you're doing triage. You're saving the people that can be saved. That's what they do, right? If, if you're in a trauma situation, triage is figuring out who can be saved and allocating resources accordingly. I, I think you're doing triage on humanity. I think that's wonderful. Allegedly. And I mean, unfortunately, I think now triage will mostly involve shoving a swab up someone's nose and putting them in the COVID ward still. But, you know, old triage, the old standard. <laughs> old triage. But I didn't know that that's what I was setting out to do, really. I mean, I just wanted to do a live show. I thought it'd be fun. And I thought, you know, I've been to lots of live events and not not to diss any of them because they're great, but they tend just to be two people on a stage talking. And I thought, well, I could do something potentially more interesting because I've got all these visuals and I have a story that's kind of unique. And um, I didn't really know exactly what I was going to do with it beyond that. And got a kind of team of people together to help me and it grew into this thing where obviously it would have been quite tempting to just do a Bob Moran love-in and to get on stage and have a good old rant about all the idiots who've gone along with it and all the evil assholes who are in charge and just scream wake up everybody and I thought no that's kind of a missed opportunity and there are enough other people doing that already and because I've got the cartoons and the cartoons they speak for themselves, right? That's the whole point. We can talk about that when we come on to kosher in a minute. But, you know, my cartoons say what I want to say. So it means I don't need to be particularly assertive or aggressive in my presentation and what I'm saying. So the, the show is kind of more it's talking about my, how I became a cartoonist and why I love cartoons, why cartoons are important, and then my kind of journey of how my thinking evolved because I wasn't, it's not like on day one, I was like, oh, this is an agenda. This is a psyop. This is nonsense. It took me a while. I was quite careful at the start. We did stop going out for a couple of weeks. And, and I had to think really carefully because once I started to get suspicious, I thought, well, this is potentially really dangerous. I could be putting my career on the line here. Do I want to do this? Do I want to step out of line and start speaking out? Because I knew plenty of people. I had colleagues who agreed with me, but said, I'm not going to say anything, though, because they basically kind of 
hedged their bets and decided that the mad ideas would win. So they weren't going to question any of them. And it grew into a proper show as well. You know, it's just me on stage. Or it, it was just me on stage with my drawing desk and I draw in the show. So there's a, there's a GoPro over my desk so people can see me drawing. And then at a certain point, this wonderful uh, musician, Paul Handley, contacted me and said, you know, do you want some music? And I thought he was just going to write some music for the show, which was great. And I said, yeah, that'd be fantastic. And then at a certain point, he said, I think we could actually have a band live on stage with you playing. And so that happened. And then there were props and there were bits where I'm crawling across the stage and things. And it, it is a proper one-man show, you know, with bells and whistles and and some special effects and lighting and and explosives going off and all kinds of stuff. So it's really great. And we just, we wanted to make sure that anyone could come and see it. And even if they went away thinking, I still don't agree with him, they would still think they'd seen a good show, you know. Lofty goals indeed. Trying to get your play with a black woman in a wheelchair into a theatre, I can confirm that the theatre world is not friendly to people like us now. So, you know, despite doing two sellout nights in London, brand new show, there were no previews or anything. Those two shows were the first time we'd ever run through it without stopping. We only finished writing it about two days before. We were still tweaking it. And it went down so well, like standing ovations both nights. And you'd think we'd already booked a theatre in Newcastle to put it on again in January. They'd been really helpful and, and enthusiastic. And then two, three days after the tickets had gone on sale, they just cancelled it and said, oh, we know we're pulling your show. What? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't know about that. What happened? So basically, when I announced I was doing the show in London, and I was already aware I've got a lot of fans up north in the UK, and lots of people said, please, can you bring it up north? We don't travel to London. We don't like London. I completely sympathize with that. I understand. And I think, yes, yeah, stay out of it. <laughs> My kind of people. <laughs> the rebellious north. We don't do London. Please, can rebellious you come north? north yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we found this... It's a beautiful, it's the Newcastle Opera House, Tyne Opera House in Newcastle, really beautiful building, 1,200 seat capacity, and they had availability for January. So before the shows happened in London, we booked that, signed the contract, and we arranged for the tickets to go on sale the day after the London shows. And so we were going to have like a gap over Christmas and then enough time to tweak the show, make some improvements and take it up north. And the tickets started selling really well. Then what actually happened was they got a new CEO that week who, from the looks of things, is, is a kind of incredibly woke, drag queen friendly type of chap who appears to be sponsored by AstraZeneca, if you look at his Twitter feed. And I think he just came in and said, not that guy, pull the show, which they have no legal right to do. I was just going to say, isn't that breach of contract? Yeah, again, logic, sorry. I know that's banned these days, but hang on, you've signed a contract. Money's exchanged hands. Tickets have been sold. What are you talking about? We're not having this guy. You've already signed the deal. Yeah, the arrogance of these people, though, they don't care, Sarah, and they genuinely think they can get away with it because you're just some evil, transphobic bigot who doesn't like masks. So the show is cancelled, and I just got a really curt email saying, We've pulled your show because you've posted offensive content online or content that discriminates against people based on their identity. 
And I said, that's a pretty serious accusation to make. Can you send me this material you're referring to, please? I'd like to see what you mean. Still haven't seen it. I still have not seen anything from them, any material that they used to justify cancelling my show. And then, of course, what happens is once a theatre like that has cancelled you, because they put out a public statement saying we're not having Bob Moran's show here because it doesn't align with our values, then every other major theatre closes its doors to you because these theatres are very political and very woke. And the last thing anyone wants nowadays is a controversial artist. That's not what they're looking for. But that's ironic because that's what art is supposed to be. The theatre itself is subversive. It's supposed to be. The very act of acting is a, a subversive act. That's the whole point of it. That's precisely the role. You know that you're living in a tyranny when the king murders or has his jester executed. The jester or the clown at court is the only person historically that is allowed to tell the whole truth. And that's why he's damn funny. He says things that nobody would dare say in front of the king. Yeah. In our society, modern day, it's the comedians, the artists such as yourself, proper plays in proper theatres, which hardly exist anymore. They are the jesters. They are the court jesters. They're the ones that are meant to do these things that are outrageous. That's actually a form of safety for the rest of society, because as long as somebody can still point the finger at the king without being killed, then we're probably not quite living in an evil tyranny just yet. So to hear that something like that has happened to you, I'm sorry I missed it. I must have been all sick because I wouldn't have, have ignored that. I would have been all over it. Everybody, whether they like you or not, whether they love your work or hate it, they should be alarmed by this kind of behaviour, shouldn't they? Yeah, you would hope so. And to be fair, lots of people did kind of start boycotting the theatre. I mean, that theatre got a lot of bad publicity and I think their social media team must have had quite a stressful time of it, which is good. You know, I, and I am trying to pursue uh, legal action for it because it's, it's just total breach of contract. Yeah, there was a pleasant irony to the whole thing. And this actually happened with the London theatre as well, where the trans issue is, is like the most valued piece of ammunition at the moment. So if they can throw anti-trans at you, they think they've got you. And um, this came up early on with the original shows in London, where they called me in for a meeting and said, well, we've had some complaints from people who say some of your cartoons are anti-trans. And they said, you know, we want you to ensure that there won't be any of that material in the show. Just take out all of your trans cartoons, which I said, no, I wouldn't. And I, I said, you know, the whole point of this show is that I've got to a point in my career where nobody tells me what I can or can't draw. And if I start removing content because you've had someone complain, it defeats the object. It's completely counter to what the show's about. Now, ironically, I didn't say this, but interestingly... There was never any of that stuff in the show. The show does not touch on the trans issue at all. And that was a really early decision we made because it would have taken too long to kind of explain how it relates to everything else because most people see it as a separate issue. So it was never in the show. So everyone was complaining about something that wasn't in the show. It takes David Icke 12 hours to make those connections. If David was trying to link the trans thing to everything else, it literally takes him a whole day. I've watched him do it at Wembley Arena and up at Manchester at the Apollo. Yeah. It, it does. It takes him, I'm not joking, 12 hours of talking to make those connections. So yeah, I don't blame you. You can't do that in a 90 minute, two hour, whatever show. Not possible. Yeah, for sure. 
How ironic. It just goes to show who's really pushing the buttons behind this agenda, doesn't it? Yeah. Because they're complaining about something that's not even there. But obviously everyone assumes that you're cancelled because of something in your show, you know, and and I'd have to keep saying no, it's nothing to do with the content. It's not about the show. And you have all these people, you know, however many people, 850 or something people who've actually been to see the show are online saying, but there's nothing offensive in it. They all really enjoyed it, but they were surprised by how gentle it was in many ways. You know, they don't care, these people, though. And I, a part of me wonders whether it's because it went down so well and because so many people on the other side had connected with it that it's been so hard to put it on again. They can't have Bob Moran performing triage and saving people. They don't want people saved. They don't want people to expose themselves to an other point of view. They want to divide people into, oh, I'm a masker and I'm not a masker and that's it and never the twain shall meet. So if you're doing something that challenges that, yeah, I can see why you would be a big threat. We cannot allow Bob Moran performing triage, saving good people. No. Yeah, well done you. And this is before we got to kosher, right? You've not even painted this one yet. This is before we got to kosher. And, uh, uh, <laughs> take your time, but take your journey to there if you can. That would be wonderful. Well, we're talking about the show stuff because this is related, actually. Another irony, I guess. So October 7th, obviously, is when all of this kicked off and the shows were going to be 4th and 5th of November. And about two weeks before the shows were due to be on, I had another call from the theatre saying they'd had a threat from some pro-Israeli group saying that I was anti-Israel or I was you know, being anti-Semitic. And I said, but I haven't. I'd be very careful not to say anything about it because I knew it was so close to the show and I knew I'd had, they'd already had these issues about trans stuff and things and I just wanted to make sure the shows happened. So I stayed quiet about that, which part of me regrets. I don't like ever staying quiet about something, Sarah. You know, I don't like censoring myself. But for the sake of the shows, I hadn't said anything. I said, look, I've never actually said anything online about this at all. So, and, and they said, oh yeah, but people read between the lines, don't they? And I said, it's not my problem. They can read what they like between the lines. But yeah, anyway, I hadn't said anything then, and people were still threatening to to shut me down. But I have now, <laughs> and it's been interesting. It wasn't quiet, was it? Bob Moran is not quiet. He's back, and uh, we have kosher. Well, obviously, I've been thinking about it for all that time, about what I wanted to say and, and how I wanted to say it. And I also thought... I. I want to wait a bit and just see, I could see how people were reacting when it first happened, lots of people. And obviously I thought it was kind of bonkers and didn't make any sense and, and really kind of hypocritical from a lot of people and a total denial of what they just witnessed happen for the last three years. But I thought, give it some time. Maybe they'll come around. Maybe they're just kind of panicking a bit or, or it's a knee-jerk response. And, you know, you saw a lot of people reverting to their old mentality, kind of like, well, I'm a conservative, so I like Israel. It's kind of like, well, you, you not understand, you've got to let all of that go. You have to rethink all of these things. You're not conservative. There's no left, right. Anyway, but it didn't. It didn't improve at all. So I thought, yeah, I know what I want to say and I know exactly how I want to say it. And I know exactly what the reaction to it will be in terms of the criticism it will receive. And in many ways, the response that cartoon received, it provided the punchline, if you like, even though it's not a joke cartoon, but it underlined the point I was making, which I was kind of hoped that's what would happen. 
most people did not get it at all, obviously. And obviously, I probably wouldn't pitch an idea like that to the newspaper. But what I mean is, while I was working for the Telegraph, there'd be days where I'd come up with an idea that I loved, that was a bit clever and a little bit challenging and required a bit of reading and in-depth thought from the viewer. And the editor would say, yeah, I, I see what you're doing here, but it's too clever. People won't get it. And it used to really frustrate me. Oh, I hate it when they say that. They say that in the theatre all the time, and it's not true. They say that all of the time. They make you change your play. They're like, Yeah, they do that. The same excuse. Oh, people won't get it. How dare you patronise your audience? You don't know what people are capable of. They said that people didn't want to listen to long-form interviews like this. They just want 10, 15 minutes on the news. Well, that's not true, is it? Look at all these podcasts that are like an hour, two hours, even three hours. People want that long-form. They're getting into the weeds, into the details. Don't they? It's been proven. There are people out there just yearning to think about something again, <laughs> and they're denied the opportunity. And that's a great thing now, is I don't, if I have an idea that I like and I think, oh, this is maybe a little bit nuanced or a bit complicated or a bit clever... I think it doesn't matter. I can do it. No one can tell me I can't do it. And I'm not going to dumb down my output because there are still some idiots out there who can't be bothered to look at a cartoon and think about what it might be trying to say. You know, I sort of, like I said earlier, my one of my main roles is to kind of highlight irony and hypocrisy. You know, I seek out irony and then I show it to people in the kind of most effective way possible with my drawings. And... I found it fascinating. I think some people think they've caught me out when they highlight this uh, visual trope, the anti-Semitic visual trope of the monster Jew eating children, as if I somehow wouldn't be aware of these visual tropes and have used them many, many times. Not necessarily that one, but I am, I'm very aware of the history of this stuff and how it was used and why it was used and the fact that that was a piece of Nazi propaganda commissioned by the state to provoke a very specific reaction and is obviously horrible. And then the whole thing was horrible. And that trope was a generic character. It wasn't a specific person. It was an invented creature, monster, that was meant to represent an entire group of people and say, these people do this, and you must all think of all these people in this way, which is obviously an absurd and disgusting and ludicrous thing to do, and it's not what you should be doing if you're any kind of artist or cartoonist or satirist. And this is called blood libel. Why is it called blood libel? Because, well, it's libelous in the sense that it isn't true. The idea is, no, these people do not do that. They aren't child killers. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? So if you imagine, well, what would happen then if the most powerful representative of those people in the world started indiscriminately killing thousands of children and in so doing became the literal embodiment of that awful visual trope that had led to so much horror? You would hope, I would hope, I think everyone should hope that the entire world regardless of why he claims he's doing it, okay, regardless of what he's getting revenge for or what he claims he's defending against, there is no justification for indiscriminately killing children. Call me old-fashioned, that's my view. So you would hope they would all say, this is completely unacceptable and disgusting and offensive because you are doing the thing that we were all accused of doing in all of that disgusting propaganda. And we totally denounce it and we don't associate ourselves with you. That's not what happened. 
what happened was lots of people said, it's okay for this person to do that because he says he belongs to the group of people. And that disgusting irony is what I'm trying to highlight in the cartoon. And people may notice that there is no generic character in that cartoon. I have drawn three real human beings who are all world leaders or heads of state. Well, they're world famous. I, would, I wouldn't say they were leaders of anything uh, any good, but you're absolutely right. They're very, very famous people. I don't know faces. I'm rubbish at facial recognition, but I knew who they were straight away. Every single one of them, one, two, three, bang. I'm rubbish at that sort of thing. So it's not unclear in any way what you are doing, in any way. And I encourage, if people are listening to this and haven't seen this brilliant cartoon, it's called Kosher, and you can find it at bobmoran.co.uk. That's bobmoran.co.uk. You can go and find this wonderful piece of art right there. Yeah, and obviously there are layers of irony in that cartoon. And what happened was the way people reacted to it kind of piled on more layers to the irony gatto some of which I hadn't even, you know, envisaged. And that was satisfying to me. And I really wanted to make these people own their position because it's not as if people were arguing against it saying, yeah, obviously we're against what he's doing, but we think this is anti-Semitic. It was almost to a man, everyone saying, this is anti-Semitic and we have no problem with what he's doing. You know, they really stood by their support for genocide. And one of the things I can't understand is... People on our side who know what has taken place in the world, who know what these injections have done, and who saw what happened in Israel specifically, and what Benjamin Netanyahu did to the Jewish people in terms of ripping their rights away, imprisoning them in their homes, using fear to control them, then making them provide papers, essentially, the Green Pass. All of you Jews must show papers in Israel to go to a restaurant or to go to the cinema, and then made them guinea pigs for the most horrific, dangerous, deadly medical experiment that's ever taken place in the history of the world. And then he bragged about it on national TV. Now, I would say that you might suggest doing that to... And obviously, lots and lots of Jewish people in Israel have died as a result of what he's done. And it's very, very difficult, I think, to argue that he did not realize that he would kill his own people by doing this. So I would argue that you might suggest that he was anti-Semitic. I don't know. Is that a stretch? Somebody who sets out to kill thousands of Jews? And there are people on our side who knew this and who said it was appalling and a horrific kind of echo of, of what happened in 1930s Germany. But then as soon as October the 7th happened, and as soon as you kind of wave the idea of terrorism in their face again, are suddenly able to entertain the idea that this same man wants to defend his people. That when he hears some terrorists, whoever they might be, however they might have gotten in, let's assume they did paraglide in. Let's assume they got the paragliders into Gaza and somehow managed to train themselves to use paragliders in Gaza and flew over the fence and just all of the Israeli army were having a cup of tea that day, whatever. Regardless, when he hears about this, he's somehow upset and disturbed and worried and thinks something must be done. A man who's just spent three years trying to kill his own people, his great news boss, some of the ones we missed with the jab, have just been killed by some terrorists with machetes. Why is he going to have a problem with that? I don't understand this mentality. Because when people say Israel has a right to defend themselves, I think... Maybe some of them are thinking, 
An Israeli citizen who sees someone running towards their door with a machete has a right to defend themselves. Yeah, of course they do. Everyone does. We all have a right to defend our families. That's not what is going on here. That's not what you're talking about. You're talking about a state with arguably the most powerful military in the world shelling the hell out of a country that has no army and that is indiscriminately killing children and citizens. It, this is not about whether an individual has the right to defend themselves. You are talking about the Israeli government, who you already know does not care about its people. You know, the idea, oh, he's being very careful, though. It's very calculated, as if he's going to go out of his way not to harm Palestinian children after what he's done to his own children in his own country. It's just ludicrous. But again, it's this absurd lack of logic this cognitive dissonance of, that's just awkward though, that's really difficult. I think people just think, yeah, but how do we deal with a situation like that where no one's good? They want to have this automatic response of, yes, there's a war and we're on this side and our government needs to go and defend democracy against the terrorists. And you're going, they're all terrorists. Did you not notice every single Western government has behaved like a terrorist organisation for three years now? And millions of people are dying as a result. At best, they're indifferent to terrorism, okay? At worst, they facilitate it. They're big fans. Why wouldn't they be? It's one of the first things I kind of woke up to is, well, terrorism isn't what they tell us, is it? Clearly, if these people are prepared to kill this many of their own citizens, why would they bother trying to stop terrorist attacks? It doesn't make any sense, but people just don't want to reevaluate things in that way. And it's a theme, isn't it? It's a theme that runs throughout everything, is the harm of children. This is the darkest thing for me, but it's the thing I really, like, preoccupies me the most. If you look at the lockdowns, if you look at the jabs, if you look at what's going on now in the Middle East, it is this mentality that children are expendable, that there is some figure of the number of children we should kill to achieve X, to satisfy this need. You know, well, old people are in danger from a cold, so it's okay to kill a few hundred thousand children. Hamas is a threat to Israel, so it's fine that 11,000, 12,000 children have been killed. And you want to say to these people, well, what's your maximum number then? At what point will you be satisfied? When 100,000 children are dead, will you say, okay, that, that's revenge now, I'm satisfied? Same with the lockdowns. These are killing children. Would you be prepared to go door to door, shoot children in the head and scream, save the NHS? Because ethically, that's what's going on. That's what you're supporting. That's the most horrific thing, is that people have been conditioned to put children last. It's the deepest, deepest form of evil. It's beautifully put, Bob. Well done. They superimpose this idea that we're putting children first. In doing this, in carpet bombing Gaza, we're protecting children. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Which children? Where and why? All children have a right to be protected. All children. As you so beautifully put, all of these heads of state or whatever they're supposed to be referred to as have been guilty of genociding their own people all over the world. And there's no better example of a, a tyrant going after Jewish people than Benjamin Netanyahu, the way he, he was bragging with Judas Peterson, I call him these days. Uh, he yeah. was bragging with Jordan Peterson that Israel had been first and we have all of the data collected and, you know, we got the jabs first and we did this, we did that, everybody is, is getting jabbed. He was proud of the fact that he was guinea-pigging. He was doing medical experiments on Jewish people. Yeah. 
Like, wait a second, wait a second. I'm sure I've read about that somewhere from my history books. Oh, yes, I recall it. Dr. Mengele. You know, Jewish people make a big deal out of what Mengele did, and rightly so. But why is it not being spotted by people outside of Israel? Why can they not see something so blatant as that? What has caused this cognitive dissonance? How can people be so blind? And the se- my second question to that would be, and how can people who are supposedly awake to the vaccine agenda, how can the awake people be so blind? Yeah, I don't know. It did really surprise me. That's the thing. And that's why I um, sort of spent a while contemplating what I should say and how I wanted to say it, because I was genuinely shocked by a lot of people who'd been aware and seemed to be on the ball and understood what we'd just lived through, who were just saying, oh, well, I want to go on a march in support of Israel. And, and It was a moment of truth. Yeah. Sorry. It was a moment of truth for the truth at industrial complex. Those people who pretend that they care the most about truth, this was their moment. Of, ironically, this issue was their moment of truth because I think it exposed an awful lot of people, an awful lot of people who cannot make the next jump, who cannot go beyond these old prejudices. I'm a, you said it beautifully earlier, I'm a conservative, I've got to be this, I'm a, I'm a liberal, I've got to be that. No, no, no. If nothing else, you should have learned during COVID, during the scandemic, that is all fake. All of this left-right Pepsi Coke, it's all fake. Yes. That's not a thing. Murdering children under whatever pretext, I don't even care what it is, is wrong. Again, I'm, I must be as old-fashioned and as you are because I'm not having it. That is an absolute red line. I can't believe that we even have to have this kind of conversation in 2024. I simply do not understand how other people cannot see that murdering children for any reason is wrong, period. Yeah. And like so many of these arguments, it's not even, it shouldn't be debatable and that there isn't a kind of some idea that, oh, it will be vindicated or we're waiting to be proved right. It was just, it was the same with the lockdowns and with the jabs and with this. It's like, no, there are no circumstances where this is okay. You can't present any argument. You have no argument. You're just calling for murder. I mean, again, it's so similar, isn't it? To the, you know, destroy Hamas is the new control of the virus, basically. It's, there's a threat and there is only one way to deal with it. And it's a way that's never been suggested before. Okay, so since when have you heard about, well, some hostages have been taken into this place, so we're going to destroy the entire country? Since when does that happen? You send in special forces. You, and have you noticed, it seems to be this sort of regular release of, of a hostage a week or something, so enough to eke it out for long enough to wipe out the entire country. I mean, nobody says anymore, hang on, that seems like an odd way to deal with a situation. Surely there are some other options. No one said, hang on, why is lockdown the only option for dealing with this? Surely there are other things we might do before we considered introducing communist policies on the people. But nobody says that anymore. Same with the vaccine. They all were going on about a vaccine before they even discussed whether there might be a tablet or a supplement or a natural remedy. From day, pretty much day one, maybe day two, there was a unified thing about, oh, when we get a vaccine, we're trying to find a vaccine. Wait a minute, how do you know a vaccine's going to fix this? Like, what if it's something else like getting more sunshine? What if it's something else like, oh, we're not eating enough oranges? I don't know. You said it was novel. If it is a novel virus, that's posh for new, right? Then we don't know, do we? So how do you know it's a vaccine then that's going to fix it? Yeah. Again, it's another, these clever people, they use like templates, almost like stencils, don't they? And they kind of change some details, but it's, there does seem to be a very logical 
process by which they do this stuff to us. And it's extremely frustrating when you can see it and when you're trying so hard to point it out. And you have great expertise. Can you imagine uh, somebody of my level tries to point this out? I can't make a beautiful painting. I can't show <laughs> people in the way that you can show people. I, some of us are struggling back here, Bob, to try and make ourselves not sound totally incoherent, but it's very, very difficult. We have meager tools. It's how I figure things out, though, Sarah. That's, drawing is my process of thinking things through and, you know, forming my thoughts. That's how I've always done it. That's if I need to think or deal with something or figure something out, it's just I sit down and draw. And obviously, if I'm successful, <laughs> then other people look at the drawing and, and say, oh, yeah, I, I, I can figure it out now, too. Didn't happen with kosher. I think my husband would prefer that I sat down and drew. Yeah. Unfortunately, I talk as you can see. So my poor husband, I, I talk things through, so it's terrible. I think you might buy me some pencils and some decent paper after this, because uh, obviously the quality of my drawing is not going to be good, but maybe that will help. Maybe that's what I should yeah. do. But you might just add the pencil <laughs> and tear the paper. <laughs> There's always that possibility. Start throwing them like cards, photographs of Chris Whitty or something. Yeah, I'm thinking that's more likely on balance. Maybe I should stick to the talking method. But it's great that you have this method because not only that, it, what you produce is art. I, I rarely refer to them as cartoons, actually. I know I, I should. But to me, it's art. It's beautiful art. I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. And it, it says a lot of things that I'm thinking but don't necessarily know how to articulate. And I'm like, oh, look, I can just show people it and they understand. Yeah. It's easier than me trying to explain my thoughts. A lot of people say that. Or you distill all my thoughts into a drawing, or it's exactly what I wanted to say, but I didn't know how to say it. I find that really interesting. I mean, I love writing and I love words, and there is an interesting thing in the way we engage with images that's different, and the way images communicate to us in a completely different way to when we read a passage or you read an article or even a short paragraph. And I think if you look back, you know, for a long time we didn't have an alphabet, all of the ancient cultures used images, you know, hieroglyphs and Mayan and Aztec and all the South American cultures, it, it wasn't an alphabet, it wasn't letters. And so it was almost like we'd figured out that there was something to do with the image that really related in a way that other things couldn't. And I'm not saying the alphabet is a psyop, necessarily. But I do wonder if something changed when we started writing and more or less abandoned our connection to the image there's an immediacy to it. And I think because it's so immediate, it engages a different part of your brain, which perhaps allows ideas to embed themselves in a different way, or they're able to reach a different part of your brain, because there isn't that tiny barrier of having to interpret the words and read them and then think of it. It's more staggered when you read something to when you look at an image, there's an immediate response. Sometimes you can use that to your advantage. You know, that's why cartoons can be funny because you get that immediate response. It's a knee-jerk thing. Sometimes people will laugh without really realizing why it's funny until a few seconds later. I love that. I, lo I mean, I love playing around with those kind of ideas. And yeah, I mean, I'm still learning about it all, all the time. I know what you mean. I, I don't know how to describe myself anymore, whether I'm an artist or a cartoonist or a visual satirist or what i know i've never been comfortable with the art thing you know it sounds really kind of you know, farty and wanky and you know i don't i don't like it but you know some of the stuff i do now aren't quite cartoons you know some of them aren't funny sometimes i do a picture that's just kind of a beautiful picture of a child or something that's kind of more talking about 
the positive stuff and where we want to go. Perhaps you're a cartoonist, so you can mix artist and you need like a new word. I always say cartoonist. Yeah, art- we could, we could hyphenate it to make yeah. it clearer or something. We have to think of something for you because you, you are definitely uh, doing way more than just making cartoons, that is for sure. We can tell because of the reaction. You must be the first cartoonist, certainly in British history, to get this kind of reaction. Can you tell us a bit about the vitriol and some of the less favourable reactions? Because this went quite crazy, didn't it? The reaction to this particular, I want to call it a painting, but I'm supposed to call it a cartoon, so I'll do my best. Tell us how crazy this got, because people really need to hear the kinds of things that were happening so that they become aware of, you know, the level of cray-cray, let's say, that we're dealing with. Yeah, well, obviously... I mean, immediately, as soon as it went online, there were people saying, oh, this is this is anti-Semitic, this is vile, this is disgusting. And it really escalated and it went on for the best part of a week. But after a couple of days, and I didn't realise quite how big the reaction would be. And maybe that was naive of me. As I say, I did intend the reaction, though. So it's not like I could sit there going, oh, no, this is awful. I didn't want all these people talking about it. But... For a couple of days, it seemed like everyone everywhere was talking about my cartoon and they're making videos about it and writing articles. And there's some piece in the Jewish Chronicle that weirdly wanted to highlight how much my cartoon sell for on my website. I'm not sure what that was about. And there were a lot of people, you know, obviously sending me nasty messages, threatening me and things, which has happened before. Like, that's not new. You know, I, I had I had a lot of that at various points in 2020 and 21 but then it was strange because I was in London that week working on the show I was just having a completely normal week and I was getting lots of nice messages from people saying really hope you're okay I've seen what's going on and and all the threats you're getting and I mean I was fine and I I would just check in now and again to look at what what people were saying and go yeah that's interesting yeah thanks you're helping to make my point again then what happened was there was a sort of a campaign to report me to the police basically for what drawing a cartoon the crime of drawing a cartoon. But drawing a cartoon. And it was really interesting. Again, this was another wonderful layer of the irony because it was headed by lots of people who are allegedly freedom fighters on our side. And I don't really want to name them. I kind of think they're all irrelevant now. But certain people with lots of followings were kind of, you know, tweeting at Met Police and at Crown Prosecution Service UK this is clearly anti-Semitic and I hope you'll be taking action and arresting Bob Moran and all the rest of it. And because there are laws, aren't there? There are laws to do with what anti-Semitism and things. I'd had a look at them before. I mean, it's quite interesting because on the one hand, it appears to say that any criticism of anyone, even if they're not Jewish, can be called anti-Semitic. On the other hand, it does say criticism of the Israeli government is not anti-Semitic. It's one of those grey areas, I think. If they want to do something, they will. If they don't, they won't. But what was interesting was so many of the people who wanted me arrested for drawing a cartoon would be the same characters who every single time there was a Muhammad cartoon, anyone drew a Muhammad cartoon or was killed or arrested or thrown in prison for drawing a Muhammad cartoon, they would be right out championing free speech saying we cannot have cartoonists being censored like this cartoonists need to be free to say particularly criticizing religions or particularly criticizing you know authority or ideologies and things so why the bias why the bias what yeah i don't know you'd have to ask them i'm not sure 
what the difference is exactly. I can't tell the difference at all. What's really weird as well is lots of these people have met me. They've spent time with me. They know that I'm not anti-Semitic. So they know I have no problem with any group or race or religion. They know that my whole mission is about being on the side of people, ordinary people who want to be left alone, who want to live free lives, who have the right values, who care about their children. And my enemies are world leaders, other people who have the opposite principles to those things, who are destroying everything. And anyone who looks at my work for the last few years can see that. But they still decided to chuck this label at me. I mean, that's what it all comes down to. All of this stuff, isn't it? Labels. It's all based on these labels. So anti-vaxxer, the reason they could have not called it a vaccine, right? They could have brought out a drug and just said it's a drug, it's a cure. They had to call it a vaccine because they knew the power of that label. They knew that even people who had suspicions, who were worried, who thought this doesn't really make sense, would be more terrified of the label anti-vaxxer than they would about actually putting that crap in their bodies. And it's the same with this. It's the same with, you know, you people are so, so terrified of having the label anti-Semite thrown at them that that's all that matters, that they will go along with supporting a genocide because they think, well, if it seems like I have a problem with it, someone might call me anti-Semitic. Same as the anti-vax thing. And I just, I refuse to be governed by these labels. If somebody acts in a disgusting, evil way or promotes revolting ideas, I don't care what they call themselves. I will criticize them. I refuse to be restricted by that. I think it's a completely ludicrous world to live in where if someone calls themselves Jewish or they call themselves a doctor or they call themselves trans, they can do whatever revolting things they want and nobody is allowed to criticize what they're doing because they will hold up their label and say, you're criticizing my label. I'm not. I don't care about your label. I care about you as an individual and the awful things you're doing. Yeah, that's that's what, you know, and you get that. Obviously, when you work for a paper, you get that all the time. You get, oh, if you draw this, they'll call you this. And I would say, but I'm not that. And we can just say, go away. You're deliberately misinterpreting it. But they're also terrified. And we can't. We can't afford to do that. We can't afford to play that game. We've got to stop. We, we have to stop. And likewise, it's, you know, I don't like people who say it with the trans thing. You're just like, oh, these trans people are pedophiles. They're all monsters. It's like, well, no, that... That's not, you know, I've come across some people in these groups who will say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I think I was born a man, but I think I'm a, a woman, whatever. But I absolutely don't want to be allowed into children's changing rooms. I don't want to be allowed into children's toilets because we have to put children first. We have to keep them safe. My need for some kind of validation and recognition is way, way below the safety of children. So we shouldn't be asking for that. That's great. I don't have a problem with that. The people who say, no, my sense of importance, my selfish need for recognition goes above the safety of children and women. You're not a trans person. You're not, you don't have a label. You're just a revolting human being who needs to shut up and go away. You are just promoting a disgusting idea. So, uh, yeah, I just, I hate all these labels. Beautifully put. <laughs> Imagine living next to people who are more afraid of being called a name than the genocide of a people. Like, 
we're talking about murdering children and and those who survive you know, living lives maimed, permanently traumatized, all of the other kinds of injuries and illnesses that are a follow-on, assuming you survive being carpet bombed or whatever they do to these poor children. How can anybody call themselves an adult, a man or a woman? Most children would be ashamed of being more afraid of being called a name than doing the right thing or defending someone who's weaker than you. I'm the same. I've never cared. I don't care what anyone calls me. I literally don't give a fig. I genuinely believe in free speech. You can say whatever you like about me. I won't even sue you. I actually don't care. I'm not interested in it. I'm interested in disgusting behavior. Yeah. And I will call it out. And I think you have to have like a thick skin. You have to be a bit like a rhinoceros. You have to have a rhino hide to be able to do this. You have to just go, nope. I'm sorry, that's wrong, and I'm calling it out. And I think that's what was so brave about your cartoon, Kosher. I mean, most of your cartoons are extremely brave, in, in fairness to you. But this one in particular, because you you knew that this this label, this slur was going to be immediately tossed your way uh, because of the history and be- and also because of the the deliberate desire for people to make a fuss. They have this they, they have this desire to be triggered these days. Yeah. They they want to have an excuse to shout and scream and, and and call other people names. And that's really interesting because these are the people who who preach tolerance and inclusion and equality. And yet they're the first ones to shout and scream and call other people names. And and it, and actually career ending names in, in many cases. If you know if if a teacher is accused of of being an anti-Semite, that's your career basically over. Yeah. You know, if 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 they if you know I I couldn't put this on my on my overhead projector in a classroom. I'd be fired and I'd never teach again if I was in the beast system. I'm not, but that's what would happen to me. There are many, many people who simply, to be even suggested that you're an anti-Semite is career-ending, and that should not be the case. If, you're, if, you, if you genuinely hate to have a hatred of Jewish people, I'm sure the average person in the street would judge you accordingly. I, yeah, if, if, you're, I, if you're stupid enough to... Like, I, why do we need this, this, this labelling and this, this nonsense? I think we can trust people to go, well, you know... They're in favor of of labeling all Jews as as this or that. They're obviously a moron. Why would I listen to them? It's like when I used to get sexist abuse at football matches when I was a football referee in men's football. I, I couldn't care less. They're morons. No one no one listens to people who think I can't referee a football match because I have boobies. That's yeah. stupid. It's yeah. obviously stupid. And no almost nobody pays attention to that. So I didn't make a song and dance about it. I didn't care. I couldn't care less. If that's if that's if that's the level that they've risen to as a human being, that's their problem. It's very sad for them, right? Like, why the labels? Why the labeling? Is it a means of social control? Is is this labeling part of the evil one's plan? Is is that is that why it's so powerful? Is that what it's there for? I mean, it is very much the label thing, and that they either hand out labels to people or they allow people to just choose a label for themselves. But it's it, again, it's all about that that lack of a sense of agency of being an individual in the world, forging your own path, making your own opinions, not being constantly offended. It used to be embarrassing to say you're offended by something. You know, it used to be a sign of weakness. It, it, it used to be a kind of like, you've, you've pierced my armor with what you've drawn or what you've um, said there. And it's kind of like, ah, it's a bit, it is a bit pathetic though, because I should just suck it up or ignore it. People don't like that. They revel in any opportunity to say, I've been offended and upset by this. The labels, I think the more, obviously it divides us, and that's a big part of what they need to do is get everyone divided. But I think the labels are also being used a substitute for self-improvement and a substitute for figuring out why you're not happy. 
and why you're struggling. They, they, there's this Excuses. idea now, if you don't like who you are or you're a, bit, you're a bit confused or a bit lost, especially young people, right? I mean, that's, again, part of being a teenager is you don't know who you're supposed to be. You don't know why you feel the way you do. You're not quite sure about anything. And rather than saying, well, work it out, work out who you are and learn to love who you are, because who you are is amazing and it's important and you can do wonderful things. Now, it's like they open, a, they open a door over here and say, pick a new identity, be something else. Just pick, pick one of these. If you don't like that, change it the next day. Next week, you can have another one. It's a, it's a really abusive and disgusting thing to do, especially to young people, to make people believe that you, you can just pick up a, a different label when it suits you and be something else. There's no, there's no integrity in that, and you can't have a set of principles if you're doing that and stick to them. You can't have convictions. You know, it's, it's impossible, but that's what they want. They want people all over the place. They want people agreeing to things today that they either weren't interested in or disagreed with yesterday. That's the whole point. And, and just, I mean, maybe this is a last thing we talk about. I don't know. I mean, what time is it? Oh, my goodness. I didn't realize how long we'd be talking, but free speech, everyone goes on about free speech, you know, and it's important. Obviously I think it's important, you know, and I, I kind of try and champion free speech and test the limits of free speech. But sometimes I think it's a bit of a distraction in that everyone is always taught to worry about free speech issues when what is actually taking place, what, what we're currently living through is a time when people in authority have total freedom of action. These people are being allowed to do, actually do things and act in the world with, without consequence, without any justice. And that is always more worrying than what people can say. And I think there's so much, that, and the only reason the free speech thing has really come up is because there are people trying to say, look what they're doing. And other people say, you're not allowed to point out what they're doing. So sometimes I think we dwell too much on freedom of speech and forget that the freedom of speech thing is just related to action that's taking place. You know, And it's, it's really nice when people say that my drawings are powerful and that they help people and I'm having an effect. But the flip side of that is all I am doing and have done is sit here in my attic making pictures. I've, I've not gone and done anything to anyone. M my pictures are highlighting the fact that there are real people doing real things and those things are completely horrific. And I'm the one who, who gets the flat. I'm the one who gets attacked. I'm the one who people across and want arrested. You know, and it's like maybe, maybe just maybe call the police about the guy doing the genocide before you call the police on the guy drawing it. Wow. Call the police on the guy doing the genocide <laughs> before you call the police on the guy drawing it. I love it. I mean, that's <laughs> well where the police were on last night, which we're saying not, but I, if, for the sake of that point, I pretended they were. Yeah, it's a sad state of affairs in 2024, but here we are. Here we are. The guy doing the genocide, oh, well, he's, got, he's got to be defended. Uh, yeah. The guy who, who pointed it out, well, gee, it's the classic, let's shoot the messenger, isn't it? Let's shoot the yeah. messenger. Know that the messenger's bringing the message. 
like that's it's uh yeah it's meant to be a bit part but actually it's usually a critical one and typically messengers do end up dead in uh, all, all of the great plays don't they so uh, you better you better take good care yeah. of yourself actually speaking of which speaking of which how how do we, I, I like to try to leave it on um like a, a strong positive note and it's really difficult in in, in these times I do struggle yeah. for this but I, I try to I try to think about solutions like how can we how can we help? How can we help ordinary people during these times? And I mentioned to you before we came on air about struggling with anger. Like I'm angry. I'm, I'm very angry. And it would seem to me that you have all this passion also, but you seem to be so much more composed than I am in, in many ways. And I wondered if you might just, before we wrap up, dig into why you're able to keep your composure better than I or better than some other people. And maybe these things might help other families and people who are listening to us try to manage their... I mean, it, it's so upsetting for us all to see these people who are happier to shout and scream at a cartoonist for drawing a cartoon about a genocide rather than go and shout at the people doing the genocide. How can we help ourselves not go completely crazy with rage? Yeah. Well, the first thing I suppose I should say is it's important. I mean, people ought to be angry. There is nothing wrong with feeling angry about what's happening. And there have been times when there has not been enough of it, or people haven't been angry enough about what's happening. It, it's, I never thought I could be as angry as I've been at certain times in the last few years. And, it, and there are periods where you have kind of, you go back and forth between total rage and just abject despair and sadness, you know, heartbreak, it's heartbreaking. Isn't it? You, you feel heartbroken and then you just feel angry. It's hard to stay optimistic. And it, it does eat away at you, though. You, you can let that anger, like fear, you know, I think anger can take total control of you if you want. And it can start to manifest physically. It can make you physically very ill, mentally very ill. It's not a natural state to remain in all the time. And, and actually, I think if you're not angry all the time, those times when it is really necessary to get angry, your anger will probably be more effective. And, you know, you'll be able to use it in the way it's, it needs to be used. I'm very lucky because I can channel my, my anger and rage and disgust into my drawings when I need to. So I can sense it kind of building up and I'll get right, I need to, I need to do a picture. And, you know, that will be one of my more aggressive, brutal pictures. It's therapy. My drawing is therapy, basically, for me. But it does. Then it's it's interesting though because that can take something out of me. If I do a picture and I spend a long time on it, that's really grim and dark, like the bloodbath one I did with all the characters in the pools of blood, or the King Charles one I did for the coronation. It's sort of you know it's fun. People like it and it's fun. But you are spending a few days totally immersed in just revolting people and thinking about the darkness and putting the symbolism in and all of that stuff that, you know, I think, I think whether you understand what the symbols mean, they have, they probably have a power that it's not good to be thinking about that stuff and, and drawing it, even though you are doing it from the side of good and you're, you're trying to show the evil. To show the evil, you have to spend time thinking about the evil, and that can really sap your energy. Sometimes after doing some of those pictures, I've felt really ill for about a week. And I think it's just because I've I've gone down to that level, or, or I mean, not I've just I've just 
have to roll around in the muck with them to draw them sometimes, and it's not nice. What do you do to come out the other side? What What do you do afterwards after you've done got all of it? I know exactly what you mean about access, accessing the nasty stuff to be able to communicate it. What do you? How do you then sort of come down off of that? How do you get a, a better balance? How do you become find that equilibrium again? What do you do? I'll go and draw pictures of my children. <laughs> I just go and sit and draw, oh. you know, rabbits and puppies and things with them and horses and make up some poems and, you know, sing some silly songs. And and then my next piece will often be more jolly. The piece I put out then, will do, I, I will rarely do two really dark ones in a row now because I'll, I'll just write next, I'm going to do something positive and pretty and nice with, you know, trees and grass and sunshine and, and that stuff. Otherwise, you can, I think you can just spiral. If I don't do any drawing at all, which has been the case for sort of the second half of last year, because I was working on the show and I didn't really have time to put any new work out, then I start to really struggle because I just don't have any outlet at all. And then and everything starts to bottle up. So do we. We, we struggle when you're not putting your stuff out because I, I always love it when uh, one of your art pops into my bo- inbox and I'm like oh yay let's see what he's done now because it it gives me a lift because I think oh it's okay there's still there's still another good guy over there doing what needs to be done and it, it gives me a lift and encourages me to do more work and do more of the right work rather than the wrong kind of work and it does it makes us it, whatever it is whether it's a dark piece or a light piece it makes us go ah there's somebody who's, who's fighting with us somebody who has real skills and it's it's a real it's a real lift. It, it does you know I, we do love that when we we see the new stuff. Tell us tell us wh- where we can see this show. Where can, where can people get tickets? And I'll if you like I'll yeah. add the link in the description so people can just click through and make it nice and easy. But what's happening? When is it? And are you, people must be dying to hear about this by now because we've we talked quite a bit about the show that this morning this afternoon and be yeah. lovely lovely to find out how can we get there? What 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 do we need to do? Okay, great, thank you. Yeah, it's been a been been a bit of a long long road to get it on again. As I explained, it's been it's been really difficult. We are doing it again in London, in Dingwalls, in Camden, which is a great place. So if people know Dingwalls, it's like quite a famous music venue. And loads of famous musicians have played there. It's but it's right by the canal. And it's a much more so it's not a conventional theatre, it's more of a like a grungy anti-establishment rock and roll kind of place. So the show's gonna have a bit of a different vibe more of a carnivalesque atmosphere. But the great thing is we've got the place until two in the morning. So it's basically my show and an after party all rolled into one and everyone can stay and have a drink and a ch- and I'll be there and I, I hope to meet everybody and we're going to have lots of um, fun things going on, you know, comedy, food and drink and things for people to do. So I'm really excited about it. I'm not, I, I think your audience probably, you know, absolutely trustworthy, but I'm not making too much of a thing on social media about it at the moment for obvious reasons, because I just want to try and get the tickets sold before the idiots get hold of it and try and cancel it again. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's much chance of that. This venue is great. They're, they're very relaxed. Music venues aren't like theatres. But yeah, it's, uh, if you... Where can you where can you find? I mean, if you go onto a search engine and put in Bob Moran Apocalypse is the name of the show, or Bob Moran Dingwalls, you'll find a link 
to the tickets there. Um, there are there are about three hundred and twenty tickets, I think, for this, and they are they're on sale now, and they're already selling quite fast. But yeah, it would be great great to see lots of people there. I'm really excited. I don't know if we'll do the show again after this. It might be the last time I do it. It depends on various things and how it goes. But I like you say, I want to get back to doing cartoons regularly. But I think it'll be great. I think it's going to be exceptional. Bob, thank you so much for your generosity this this afternoon. It's so appreciated. You are really needed now more so than ever. And uh, you know, my personal thanks as well as the thanks of our listeners. All the people at Guerrilla Education, absolutely thrilled with your work and to have somebody with your skills and your class and your decency on our side. It's absolutely wonderful. It gives us all a lift to have you. And uh, thank you for, for, for spending this time with us. You should have been painting, of course, but thank you for coming and talking to us because we need a little bit of, we all need a little bit of Bob Moran's wise words in our ears. Ladies and gentlemen, um, is, is there anything before I wrap up? I'm going to let everyone know where, when and where this is going on, this apocalypse. Is there anything else you want to finish off with before I roll it out? I just would say right back at you, Sarah. I think everything you're doing is wonderful and it's been really lovely to chat to you and keep going because we need people like you too. Thank you. That's a really brilliant compliment coming from your good self. I appreciate that very much, Bob. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Bob Moran. Get your tickets. Catch him while you can. As, as you heard the man say, this could be a, a one night only. And given what's going on in our crazy world in 2024, uh, you need to get yourself over to Dingwell's in London. And that is Friday, the 15th of March, guys. And I will try and find the link for you and stick it in the description so you can go straight there. But keep it under your hat. We don't want the raving lunatics closing this down. So be be smart. Only, only hand it on to people you absolutely trust. There's not very many tickets and you might not see it again. So catch him while you can. He's at liberty at the moment. He's not yet been arrested. Can you imagine? <laughs> arrested for drawing a cartoon. So get yourself over there, people. It could happen. Who knows? Let's make sure we support this fantastic event. Bob Moran, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Sarah. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination. 